Kia ora, I'm Alex Ashton, and today on The Detail, Kashmir. The war-torn region is divided amongst its neighbours, India, Pakistan and China. India's Prime Minister, Narendra Modi, won the country's election by a landslide, promising to bring the autonomous state of Kashmir into the country's fold. Last month, he did that, and Kashmir went dark. The last time I spoke uh, to my family was on the 4th of August, and uh, my mother said something is happening, uh, something big is coming, and there were rumours that they would cut phone lines. And I haven't been able to talk to her ever since. Sadaf Nakash is a Kashmiri New Zealander living in Palmerston North. Her final phone call to her family was a month ago. People were saying the Indian government is going to do something. And there were uh, rumours at the time that something is happening, something sinister is happening because the government has taken all the non-Kashmiri, non-locals out. They have been asked to leave immediately. They were giving buses and transport and, and also extra troops were brought in. And I do remember my mother saying that people are saying stock up and I get some supplies and uh, I think they, they would have done that probably. To be honest with you, I've had sleepless nights. I dream about her every night. Whenever they left this communication blockade, I might, I might hear something wrong. I have this fear, you know, because I have no, no idea what's happening there. I haven't spoken to my sisters. I haven't spoken to my dad. I don't know what's happening. They have betrayed us. It was a backstabbing to us, us Kashmiris. They have, they have, they have made a prison. This Kashmiris, the whole Kashmiris now is prison. Amir Khan is a Kashmiri reporter moving in and out of the region, covering what's happening on the ground for media organisations including The Guardian and The New York Times. He told our associate producer, Kethaki Masalamani, the local people are rejecting India's attempts to take over. There have been several uh, protests across Kashmir Valley in which more than uh, 120 people have been injured in clashes with the government forces. The anger is growing and it's only a matter of time when the uh, massive protests will break out on the streets of Kashmir. What are they hoping to achieve by cutting all communication for the people of Kashmir? In their um, uh, mind, they think that they will prevent people from coming out of their homes and protest. Uh, and they think that by uh, restoring internet services, they will organize more protests across the Kashmir Valley and, uh, you know, raise much more awareness in the international community. But that's not the case because people are going in and out, especially reporters and journalists. They are going in and out and report about the Kashmir Valley. Like, I also reported for New York Times. And it's really hard times for us in Kashmir. We have had curfews before for three months straight in 2016. But this time it's been much severe because landing services have been cut off as well. So we have no clue about their family and friends for the last 20 days now. It's really hard for us to get in touch with family and friends. Imagine we can't even contact the ones who live in Srinagar. Uh, we can't contact our family who actually live across the street because there are no landline communications. There are no mobile services. I have had dozens of messages uh, on my social media when I came back to Delhi first. 
it it was primarily because uh, i i a reporter from kashmir and uh, people started texting me saying that uh, amar can can we talk to you can i can i know about our family and friends so it was really i mean i don't i didn't know what to what to tell them because i don't know about fa- their family and friends i can just console them and you know give them uh, you know say all is well but all is not well at government has projected that uh, there's a sense of normalcy in kashmir but that's not the case there's no normalcy in kashmir to understand why there's so much conflict over kashmir you need to understand its history jeffrey gettleman is the new york times south asia bureau chief this has been in the works for a long time the hindu nationalist government that controls india and is very popular that's something we can't forget even though there's been some criticism about the way this has been handled in kashmir mm. the government of india remains incredibly popular most people in the country support what is happening in kashmir they are not upset by it tens of thousands of people gathered at delhi's red fort millions listened at home and watched television all waiting to hear the words of narendra modi on independence day and for indian nationalists he did not disappoint he said his decision to strip indian administered kashmir of its special status was a major achievement and it would restore the region to its past glory the government of india as a hindu nationalist government it has this image of india as a strong hindu nation india is about 80% hindu 15% muslim a mix of christians and other religions making up the difference but this hindu ideology is very strong right now and for several years this government has been talking about doing this very thing in kashmir eradicating its statehood taking away any autonomy and making it a federal territory that's been a known desire of the government so in the weeks leading up to this action we were hearing that the more troops were coming into the valley that something was afoot and it made sense because prime minister narendra modi the leader of india mm-hmm. had just won a sweeping re-election victory in may his party stunned the country and anybody who was paying attention outside of india by winning more parliament more more seats in parliament than any party had won in decades and it was just a, a landslide victory for the hindu nationalist cause so many people believe that coming off that election victory and using that momentum and that popularity that mandate that a move on kashmir was one of the first things the government would do and that's exactly what happened can you help me out a little bit with the history of kashmir why is it so conflict ridden what's the relationship between pakistan and india as well how much time do you have <laughs> it's complicated in many different ways uh religiously politically historically um it it goes back to the formation of india in 1947 kashmir decided not to join either india or pakistan so when india and pakistan were 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 set free from british colonialism in 1947 the trouble began in early august There were disturbances in Kashmir and the forces of both sides ignored the ceasefire line and crossed into each other's territory. Neither side has really won the fight, but the war has shown just how bitterly divided the two countries are over Kashmir and how deep are the divisions between Muslims and Hindus. India was formed as a secular nation but with a strong Hindu population, a a predominant Hindu population. Pakistan was created for Muslims in the subcontinent to have their own country. 
Kashmir sits geographically right in between. And the prince of Kashmir at the time did not want to join either India or Pakistan. What makes it even more complicated, the prince of Kashmir was a Hindu prince, and the population of Kashmir is majority Muslim. That created some tensions between the population and their leadership. And then you had these two huge countries being born at the same time. It didn't seem sustainable. And in October 1947, militants from Pakistan came flooding across the border into Kashmir to take it over and make it part of Pakistan. The people resisted. There was a lot of, of, of brutality, killings of civilians, raping, looting, so real mayhem. And so the, the, the prince of Kashmir then ran to India and said, I need help. I need your military support to drive these people out. And India said, fine, but there's a condition. That condition is you join India. And the prince of Kashmir said, fine, I'll join India, but only under certain restrictions. We need to have our own prime minister, our own parliament, our own laws. We need to be treated a little differently than the rest of India. Both sides agreed. Indian military came in. They pushed those militants out of most of the area. And today, about two-thirds of Kashmir is controlled by India, and one-third is controlled by Pakistan. Pakistan eventually absorbed the parts that those militants had taken over. That's always been a sore subject. Should, should Kashmir be part of India? Should it be part of Pakistan? Should it be independent again? This has been discussed over the decades. But the reality is India controls most of it. And it's complicated by the fact that India is 80% Hindu, the Kashmir Valley is about 90% or more Muslim. And it's always had this independent identity. It feels different up there. Um, I've spent some time in Kashmir. It's absolutely beautiful. This alpine landscape of these beautiful green meadows filled with wildflowers and these towering white peaks behind them of the Himalayas and apple trees and pear trees and beautiful clear lakes. And the people look different in the clothes they wear and their facial features. It, it conveys a, a, a different story, a different ethnicity, a different history. And the Kashmiris have felt very strongly about that. There's been some mediation. There's been conflicts between India and Pakistan. Several times they fought border wars over who controls Kashmir. It came back to a standstill. What's scarier today is both countries have nuclear weapons. So any tension between those two along that border immediately raises the alarm around the world because nobody wants to see any escalation between India and Pakistan over Kashmir. Fast forward to last month. Once all sources of communications were cut for the region, there were reports of another move by the Indian government. A BBC investigation has uncovered allegations of brutal beatings and torture by soldiers in Indian-administered Kashmir. It's been 25 days since the Indian government withdrew the region's semi-autonomous status, leading to a clampdown on dissent and thousands of arrests. From the early hours of August 5th, we started hearing reports from different sources that we have in Kashmir, outside of Kashmir, that political leaders were being arrested. There was even some messages put out on social media by some of these political leaders saying they'd been put under house arrest. Others were saying that they were being detained. And as the days passed, we started to learn of this enormous operation that netted thousands of people 
business leaders, scholars, teachers, students, elected politicians who had no criminal history, all of these people were being rounded up. And that was uh, one of the most alarming aspects of what happened because it seemed to go against the, the democratic principles and India's own laws to do something like this. Do you have any idea of where they're being held? Do their families have access to them? The families do not have access to them. Lawyers do not have access to them, which is against the, the law of India. Um, there is something called the Public Safety Act in which the Indian authorities are allowed to hold any suspect who is considered detrimental to the security of the state for up to two years without charges. We don't even know if that's what they're doing, if that's the law that they're using, because the Indian government has refused to comment on these detentions. As protests break out across Kashmir, Indian officials repeat what has become a well-worn soundbite. There has been no major law and order situation reported from across the valley. Life is slowly returning to normal. But what we do know from different reports that we've gathered from people who've talked to us unofficially, who are in the government, and the family members of those arrested, is at least 2,000 people have been arrested. Some are being kept in jails in Kashmir. Some have been put on airplanes and sent to prisons around India, and they are being held incommunicado with no contact with family members or lawyers. Who was rounding these people up? From everything we heard, these roundups were being done by the federal security forces with a little help from, from local Kashmiri police. Kashmir has, has hundreds of thousands of security forces in a relatively small area. And most of those are the Indian Army and federal police officers. And then there's also state police officers. But the state police officers are kind of the, the people in the middle because they're from the state. They have families that are affected by everything. Often they're very sympathetic to the Kashmiri cause, right. yet they work for the government and they go after protesters and separatists and militants um, along with the federal forces. So from what we gathered, these, these roundups were being done by a combination, but the state officers were sort of in, you know, were, were, were marginalized. And it was the federal authorities that were really um, enforcing these, these arrests. And I spoke to the family of one businessman, uh, Mubin Shah, who was a carpet trader. He had a curio business. He used to be the head of the Chamber of Commerce. And his wife told me that they were woken up very early on August 5th by the sound of barking dogs and lots of movement in their garden. And they looked outside and they saw dozens of federal police officers. And then they were told that the husband, Mubim, was under arrest. And when they asked for a warrant, the officers said, no, we don't have a warrant. We have orders. You have to come with us. The family has not seen him since. And that's not a unique situation, I'm guessing. From what we were hearing, this scene was playing out at the exact same time. Hundreds of other homes all across the Kashmir Valley, homes of business leaders, politicians, teachers, students, mechanics, anybody that was at all associated with a position of authority, somebody who could generate a following, somebody who might speak out. But, but from all the information we have, none of these people have been charged with crimes 
and they weren't under any suspicion before the government made this move on Kashmir. Are we at a standstill, or does it feel like India is going to win the fight? I think India is going to win the fight. It just is what, what will that fight do to the rest of the country. India is in a very strong position right now, uh, geopolitically. It's got a big economy. It's considered an ally to the West to, to check the rise of China. It's also considered an ally of Russia, and it's done a good job of sort of playing a, a neutral role or, or playing both sides in this you know, increasingly divided world. That's, India's had a foreign policy like that for a long time, and now more than ever, it's really exerting that. Um, so I don't think there's going to be a large outcry outside of India or even within India about essentially annexing Kashmir. So they will control it. The question is, will it breed more militancy and make it more ungovernable, make it more dangerous and paralyze the economy even further? Will some of that militancy spread outside of Kashmir and will we see attacks in other parts of India? That's also something that could happen that some people are scared of. And what will it do to the democracy of India? If, if you can take millions of people and just cut off all communication uh, that they have, and if you can take political leaders who were elected by um, populations and, and, and totally legitimately representatives of the people and put them in jail with no charges, what does that mean for India's democracy? Those are the questions people are asking right now. You mentioned that you'd been to Kashmir and that it was this idyllic place. What is it like at the moment? I think at the moment it's a very tense, coiled, stressed out, fearful, demoralized place. I think the people in Kashmir are stunned that the government has just rolled through and done this and there's been little opposition to it. I don't think anybody imagined, even though we knew this was a desire of the government, that they would actually do it this way and this completely, shutting off the Internet, shutting down landlines, shutting off mobile phone service, flooding in federal troops, arresting all leaders. Nobody predicted that. And that's left the population feeling very frustrated, helpless, sad, fearful of what comes next. There's lots of checkpoints, military convoys barbed wire, shops closed, schools empty, people just inside their homes looking out their windows, scared of what's going to happen next. In Palmerston North, Sadaf Nakash is still waiting to hear from loved ones in Kashmir. Are you proud of being a Kashmiri? Yes, I am. I, I identify as Kashmiri. I do not identify as an Indian. And I don't think I should be killed for that. I don't think I deserve a bullet for that. It makes me proud to have a, have a different culture, have a distinct culture of my own, um, like everybody else celebrates their culture. And, you know, one thing about living in New Zealand, in, in the Festival of Cultures here in Thompson North, I was able to have my own stall of Kashmir. And they looked up online and they found a flag of Kashmir. When I went there in the morning and they had put the sign up, Kashmir and um, flag, it was a very emotional moment for me where other countries were free to represent their own um, culture, I was given that freedom as well. Nobody got offended. I wasn't put in jail for that. That's what it means for me. It means a lot for me living in a free country like that. 
That's the detail for today. I'm Alex Ashton signing off that report by Kathaki Masalamani. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz, made possible by the RNZ NZ On Air Innovation Fund. Hit the subscribe button to stay across the detail every day. And if you're on Apple, please leave a rating as it helps other listeners find us. This episode was engineered by Rangi Poik and produced by Alexia Russell. Kakite Ano.